Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to the final Tonight Show of the Year. Coming up, former president and chair of the Elders, Mary Robinson, talks climate, hop and crisis in the Middle East. Plus, our expert panel will be reviewing the top stories that got us all talking in 2023. First up tonight, I'm joined live by our former president and chair of the Elders, Mary Robinson. Thank you for taking the time to speak to us this evening. I want to go straight to what's happening in the Middle East. And I know, like all of us, Mary, you will have watched the atrocities of October 7th and the relentless bombardment of the Gaza Strip and the death and destruction in the region since. What is your feeling when you see the footage emerging from that region? It's really a, a very, very difficult situation, Kira. I think the most difficult that, I, that I've known, to be honest. Um, the reason is we're watching awful scenes on our television. It started with those horrendous attacks by Hamas on civilians in uh, Israel and taking of hostages. But since then, it has been an excessive, disproportionate bombardment of civilians in Gaza to so-called get rid of somehow, eliminate somehow Hamas um, without any other plan. And uh, now the UN is reporting that there is a real danger that people are going to be starving, that uh, you know more than 2 million people are facing crisis levels of hunger. And I know the way the UN measures this. It's a very precise thing. They're very slow to say they have phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four, and Gaza is now in very dangerous phases of acute food insecurity, hunger, starvation, close to famine. As I suppose, as a, a mother and as a grandmother, how important is it? Because it is very, very difficult to continue watching what's emerging from there. How, diff how important is it that we don't turn away from this? Well, it's kind of dehumanizing all of us. Um, a lot of people don't watch it anymore because it's too painful. Um, but I have to watch it. It's part of my job, if you like, as chair of the elders. And it is uh, very seriously worrying because it's disproportionate. And it is uh, being done by a bad government for reasons that are to do with continuing to be in office, to, to pursue this war and hope to escape the impacts of the failures of intelligence uh, before October the, the 7th. And, uh, you know, Prime Minister Netanyahu wants to stay out of jail. He wants to stay in office. He wants to just continue with this war. And, and President Biden has not exercised the proper leverage that the United States has um, in saying, uh, we want you to be restrained. He keeps saying that, 
to be uh, to be proportionate to obey international humanitarian law. He keeps saying it, but he doesn't use the the levers of uh, uh, saying we will not provide you with the armaments, we will not provide you with the money. Um, uh, and so the United States is increasingly complicit, which is even more dangerous for our world. Um, you know President Biden, you know him on a personal level. I know him as a friend, yes. You would have considered friends. him a friend. Are you yeah. disappointed in the position that he is taking? And do you think it will have long-term impacts on him politically and indeed on his legacy? Well, I know he must be weighing things very carefully. I'm sure he is. But, you know, from the outside, from um, the perspective of what's happening, it's really hard to justify. And therefore, I have to call out uh, what I see. And I do it on behalf of the elders. We're independent and we, we speak truth to power. And it's no, it's no pleasure to be doing it in this way. It's no pleasure uh, to uh, see that Israel, uh, which has the right to defend itself, is losing um, the world public opinion because of the excessive bombardment. And I'm aware from my human rights um, Israeli friends in uh, Israel, they've told me that actually the Israel television doesn't cover the suffering of the Gazan people. It, the only thing it covers in Gaza is when the military go in for the military operations and they find tunnels, et cetera. And it seems very militarily, you know, good you know, heroes of the army but they don't cover the suffering of the people of Gaza. And that's a big mistake because that's happening, um, you know, on behalf of the people of Israel who don't, are, are probably not even aware of how bad it is. We know how fond President Biden is of his Irish heritage. We've seen his visits here and how he speaks about Ireland. And we know the relationship that Ireland has with the US. Do you think they can utilize that soft power in any way to have influence on him? I'm not sure. Um, I, I just hope that anybody who's a friend of President Biden at the moment can get past the, you know, the ultra um, support for Israel, which we're seeing at the moment. Um, it, it, it's as though that's the bottom line, that we have to be on Israel's side and then try and speak to them about um, being more careful. Um, it's gone way beyond that. Um, we're now talking about, you know, two million people who are not just starving, but being bombarded every night, 8,000 8, children killed, 20,000 um, you know, of the population. It's, it's unbelievable. Journalists killed. Um, nobody has seen this before. All my UN friends are throwing up their hands in despair at what they're seeing. It's the worst of the worst at the moment. And it's being carried out with a sort of complicity of the United States. Um, letting Israel, with its bad leadership, it's not the Israeli people, it's the bad leadership that's determined in a sort of, um, you know, uh, just revulsion against what happened, if you like, on the 7th of October, and it was terrible what happened. But you have to, as government, um, be responsible and be restrained and, and obey international humanitarian law. And Israel is not doing that, and America is complicit in being so supportive. Okay, just very briefly, we know those negotiations at UN Security Council are ongoing. They've entered their fourth day. Yes, and they've been day. taking so long, and we need the ceasefire. We need a suspension of uh, hostilities to let in proper aid. Less than 10% of what's being let in at the moment is, is, is adequate. But what so, they're talking about, uh, you know, Mary Robinson, is, is a weak pause. Now and they're exhausted. Yeah, it's a pause Sorry? that they're talking about as opposed to a, a, a ceasefire. 
Is that sufficient? Is that enough? Or is that a failing it's of the It's a cessation of hostilities is a language being used. Um, so there's, you know, what, what matters is that the killing stops at the moment in order to allow humanitarian aid to get in in a very significant way um, because there's so much to be done um, to uh, you know, take care of the wounded, um, um, get the water fixed, um, get food to people. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's so basic now. And uh, that takes a little bit of time and it takes um, being able to travel around a, a, a whole area that's been so bombarded, all the roads are, are destroyed. So it, it's not easy. Um, moving on to COP28, yeah. you played a pretty significant role in those negotiations, particularly after that disagreement with Sultan Al-Jabur that you know, made global headlines. Were you surprised at how prominent you and your position became? Well, I, I was aware when I invited uh, Sultan Al-Jabur, when we met in Beijing, at a meeting of friends of the Paris Agreement, I invited him to take part in this uh, virtual summit of women leaders, that I would have an opportunity to question him. And I was looking forward to that, I must say. And uh, I was determined to try and get him to acknowledge that we needed to phase out fossil fuel. I didn't believe that I would succeed in it, but I was going to try. Um, so that was why I asked him, uh, was he himself, you know, uh, did he believe that we could phase out fossil fuel? And he was very intemperate in his responses, as we know. Um, and then, you know, he is the head of the biggest oil and gas company of Abu Dhabi. And it, 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 we know it's um, predicted to want to do a lot more, um, uh, you know, work on making money out of oil and gas over the coming years. So again, even though I asked him, I kind of knew it was unlikely he was going to say yes. So uh, I just wanted to show that he wasn't, uh, you know, that although he was president of the COP, he didn't believe in the phasing out of fossil fuel. Then later I met him during the COP and I was very determined um, that we were moving in the same direction to get the best result possible. And I pleaded with him, you know, this was his legacy to try to get the best result. And I think at the end of the day, we probably got as good a result as we could have got, not, not anything like what we need for the science, but um, if you get an, you know, got to get an agreement between people of differing views, including the differing views he held, um, it, it, it was as good as we could get. The transitioning out. Now uh, we have a great opportunity in the next COP, which is all about finance, to make that much more real for developing countries to open up the coffers of the world in ways that mean taxation, the polluter pays maritime tax, aviation tax, tax on the wealth of the huge um, profits that are made by oil and gas and coal companies, um, tax fossil fuel, move the subsidies from what's harming us into what will provide a future. Make all that real between now and COP29 in, um, in Baku, in, um, in uh, Azerbaijan. Uh, you know, that's another petrol state. Mm. We have to deal with that. But I think we, we, we know that we can work forward and work with food systems that was also on the agenda. Health was on the agenda. Um, methane uh, control that China and the United States agreed was on the agenda. There are lots of things to work on. Um, I want to move on to, I suppose, what we're seeing here domestically, because we've spoken about wars, we've spoken about climate change, and the impact of that is that we've seen increased 
migration, but we have seen migration fuel incidents here in Ireland over the last number of months, be it you know, the burning of potential refugee centres or the Dublin riots or protests. What is your, your thoughts and your feelings on what you're seeing, Mary Robinson? I think it's very important as a former president that I stay out of something that's really politically uh, quite hot. Um, I think everybody would know that I believe that the Irish people uh, do think that there is room in the inn, but they need to be properly consulted. I mean, that's the issue. And, and you know, I'll just leave it there. Um, if people uh, know what the situation is or told, you know, the real situation, they, they, they're going to be generous and open about it because that's what we are. Um, I'm just conscious that it is just a couple of days until Christmas and we're talking about very, very heavy topics. And I think a lot of people feel a little bit weary and disheartened by perhaps what we're seeing, particularly globally. Have you any sort of message of hope for people? <laughs> Not really, no. I, I think Christmas is very much a family time. I'm looking forward myself to being very close to grandchildren, um, very close to family generally. I think that's um, what, what, what it's about. And uh, what I feel... This year is it will be a much more sober Christmas because we can't escape what we see on our television screens. And we actually have two wars. I'm also very concerned about the uh, aggressive war by Russia on Ukraine. I've been um, a couple of times now to Kyiv because I'm on a, um, a high level working group looking at the environmental damage and the accountability for that and how to build back green in Ukraine itself. Um, which now is going to, in the future, be a member of the European Union, as we've heard uh, recently. And at the same time, there are people devastated. There are a lot of um, you know, young Ukrainians who died um, in the conflict with, with, with Ukraine. There are still um, you know, attacks um, every night um, in Ukraine from Russia. Um, so you know, we've got two wars in our troubled world at the moment. And yet Christmas is about family. It's about uh, being together. It's about caring for each other. All right, uh, Mary Robinson, thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us here on the Tonight Show this evening. I wish you a peaceful Christmas. Thank you. Well, joining me now in studio is John Lee, Irish Daily Mail executive editor, <coughs> Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, Irish examiner columnist Fergus Finlay, former government minister Shane Ross, and Louise Bayliss from Focus Ireland to react to what we've just heard and to some of the major news stories of the year. And just to pick up on her last point, Shane Ross, we started this year really focusing on the war in Ukraine, but it has fallen right down the news agenda. Is that playing into Putin's hands? Yes, I think um, he must be delighted. He's seeing a situation here where he was certainly kind of enemy number one of the of the world in the terms of his invasion. He was certainly under a lot of pressure in the United Nations for what he did. Uh, and certainly amongst uh, the states of Western Europe, who was also, he was also very, very unpopular, obviously. That has now transferred the, the cameras and the concentration of the world has now switched to Gaza. And what's happening now is that Biden, as we've seen from Mary Robinson's interview, is coming under pressure. And he's becoming somebody who the world is asking to do something about it. It's an amazing change in world opinion and concentration at the moment. Uh, and so I think he must be delighted to see that. I thought what Mary Robinson said about Biden was, was extremely good. And he's the key, I think, at this case, stage. He's the key. He's got to have to put pressure on Israel. And Ireland and, does have a role there. She has a role there because she knows him. Yeah, and Louise, do you think Ireland going into 2024 needs to be more vocal in its criticism 
of the US position? I think we do have to. I mean, we're all just looking at the unfurling of the horror in Gaza at the moment. And, and you know, I think it's been positioned sometimes as it's um, Zionist and anti-Semitic. And it's not about anything to do about Jews or anything. As uh, Mary Robinson said there, it is about bad leadership in Israel. And it's not about the Israeli people. And if you look at some of the really prominent Jews, like Professor Finkelstein in, in New York, who talks about the history of the Gaza and, and, and how he's ashamed. And again, Gabor Mate would be a very similar point of view. And he came from a, a Hungarian Jew and he came from that point of view. And he's saying, how could we as Jews who've gone through the horror of the Nazi invasion had now stand over this. And I think we do need to separate bad leadership in Israel to, to anti-Semitic behaviour. And you can criticise what's going on with Israel without being anti-Semitic. And I think any Jew who uses that is, is wrong. You know, we have to look at the bad leadership. Yeah, um, Fergus, you recognise, as a lot of people do, the, the right of Israel to exist. Two things, do Hamas have any role here? in ending this siege of the Gaza Strip. And is there any legitimacy in Israel's stated aim, not in how they're carrying out, but the stated aim of trying to eradicate Hamas? The British government spent 30 years trying to eradicate the IRA <clears throat> and in the end decided that they had to make peace with them. And that's what's going to happen in the end. That's not in any sense to say or to acknowledge uh, or, or to pretend that Hamas is anything other than a terrorist organisation, because it is, and it's a pretty savage one. And what they have done is they've created a war like no other. This is a refugee crisis, the first refugee crisis in the history of the world where the refugees have nowhere to go. And there's been never been anything quite like that before. Um, and, and of course, for that reason, attention has focused away from Russia. And of course, for that reason, there's so much pressure on President Biden. I, 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 I go along with an awful lot of what Louise and Shane have said, but not all the way. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, several hundred synagogues in the US have had to be evacuated and searched after bomb threats. There is a huge upsurge in anti-Semitism in the United States and elsewhere in Europe. Um, and, and in part, that is caused by Netanyahu. Uh, of course it is. But... You, it's really, really not as simple as saying Joe Biden can click his fingers and Netanyahu will, will bend the knee. It won't happen that way. All right, look, I'm going to leave that discussion there for now, but do join us after the break when we talk to the rest of our guests about flip-flops, secret payments and one of the big news stories of 2023 in our News Roundup. Very welcome back, John Lee, Irish Daily Mail executive editor, Irish Daily Mirror political correspondent Louise Byrne, Irish examiner columnist Fergus Finlay, former government minister Shane Ross and Louise Bayliss from Focus Ireland have stayed with me as we delve into some of the stories that got us talking this year. And from flip-flops to failed musicals and secret payments, it was certainly a very busy year for RTE. And you have to say, Louise, one of the big, if not the biggest, uh, next to the Dublin rates, domestic story of the year. Who would have thought that, next to Virgin Media, obviously, of course, Aractus TV would become the go-to channel 
mid-afternoon. But you have reached your Oireachtas Committee threshold. I reached my. I what? I reached that threshold. I'd say in July when I think I was on the seventh RTE Iraq this committee hearing of the year. Listen, it was a story that really captured everyone's imagination because for so long we had heard RTE talking about their financial situation. They were constantly coming to government saying we need more money. The license fee is broken. People aren't paying the license fee. We need a new funding model. And then I guess when this story erupted, I think the members of the public who had paid their license fee were hearing about five thousand euro on two hundred pairs of flip flops. They were hearing about memberships of uh, private clubs in London. And then I think what it really came down to is, was Ryan Tuberty overpaid? Was his salary underdeclared? On all these rows back and forth. And I think... And also a, a story, I suppose, that was there that was made much worse because of the performance of so many people in front of those Oireachtas committees and the sense that we never were really getting the full version of the truth. And I think this is the thing, it was very ropey at the start. I remember those first few hearings at the end of June and you had people going in and... To be honest, I don't really think anyone exactly knew what was going on. Now, I'm sure the people in those committees would say, well, that's because the former Director General, Dee Forbes, wasn't around. She wasn't coming into the committee. She wasn't speaking to people. So they really felt that she was the missing piece of this equation and all these things. Now, you would have to say that... And I think a lot of people were saying, well, why do you need so many Oireachtas hearings? I think seven, eight, we had all kind of reached our limit by the end. But the only thing about them was there was something new came out every single time. And I actually think it was Oireachtas committees at their best. Um, because a lot of the work goes on in committees that people don't actually see. So we did get a lot of answers to questions, but I think I think you'd be going into New Year hoping now that all those questions are answered and they might have better fortunes in 2024. Okay, and we're going to come to that. But Louise, um, Louise said that it really caught people's attention. And of course, one of the reasons that it caught attention was because there was a celebrity right in the middle of it, one of Ireland's best known faces, Ryan Tuberty, who ultimately um, no longer works now for RTE. Do you think he was made a scapegoat at all in all of this? Do you think he was treated fairly? Will you be listening to him now in his new um, programme in the UK? I won't be listening to his new programme, but basically I never listened to his programme before, so it's not because of anything that has happened. I think he's a very affable man, but I also think he was too long in his job. You know, if you've been in the private sector and we've all worked in different jobs, you understand where management are in play. And I think when he was in the negotiations and he had got the contract just about over, and then he issued the final statement going, ha-ha, I was right all along. I'm not, not in those words, but in that tone. You know, in the private sector, when you have a management above you, you don't adopt that tone. You're very grateful to stick in your job. He'd been in his job a long time and was very secure. And I do feel very sorry for some of the staff in RTE, who, some of the runners, some of the editors who are in very low salaries and listening to that playing out. Um, but, but it wasn't just about Ryan Tuberty and it could have, you know, as you said, he may have been made a scapegoat. But I, I particularly think Louise's story about the 5,000 euro on, on the flip-flops is just so funny because one of my friends got married in the summer and she provided flip-flops for all the guests, but they were one euro in Dunn's last Christmas. And she got into her car and drove through all the different Dunn stores <laughs> in the area. So basically, there was and, better value. There was there better, better value, value. And there. I wore those flip-flops on the wedding day because, you know, when your feet get tired after the high heels... But it wasn't 5,000, Fergus. It wasn't 5,000. Uh, Louise mentioned there, look, that it was a very difficult year for RTE, which it was, Fergus. But in some ways, 2024 is going to be much more difficult for the organisation, isn't it? I mean, it deals with the tarnished reputations, but this is the year of the so-called promised reforms. I think so. I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, I have, I should... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. To clear interest, I have family members who work in RTE uh, very hardworking, very professional, and not very well paid. Um, and they are angry. Everyone I know who works in RTE is still angry, seething with anger at what happened. I mean, this is one of the most bizarre scandals we've ever had. It's bizarre in the sense that in five years' time, if you gather us together and say, tell us what Ryan Tuberty did, none of us will be able to explain it to you. Well, we won't remember it. John might. Um, Pretty quickly, what happened? <laughs> um, I'm talking about five years from now, John, and the public at large will not remember what happened. What what does what has happened though is that the public at large has lost trust in RTE, and that's a tragedy in a certain kind of way. We need RTE, and we need it to be trusted, and they've got to get next year right. But apart from the reforms, they also have to start cutting costs next year, and that will be really painful as well. Um, well, it's also going to be a painful discussion, Shane Ross, and I think one that in some ways we're no closer to answering. What is RTE? What is a public sector broadcaster? And the big question that's going to play out apparently next year if the government do tackle this is how do we fund it? Well, you know, the extraordinary thing about this is this isn't a new problem. This problem arose in 1960, 1961, when RTE, when television was formed. And the question, the big question there was, how is it going to be funded? And the argument, the main argument there was, how is it going to be paid for? Is it going to be done by commercial means or is it going to be, or is it going to be done, done, done uh, by licence fee? And ever since then, there's been an argument going backwards and forwards and they've managed to kind of fudge it on and on by the government, by the government getting some sort of control and it, by interference and by controlling it with money. And now they've got a situation where they're going to have to make up their minds because the money is drying up on the, on the, on the licence fee side. Now, what's going, to, what's going to happen then? They say that they're going to make a decision in 24 and they're going to implement it in 25. They know perfectly well they won't be around to implement it in 25. Do you the agree with this, John? This is going made. to be another, which, which Shane is saying, look, when it came to the funding, it's been fudged for there years. There is no way that they're going to put an extra tax on to fund television with an election coming up. And also, there is no agreement at Cabinet. None. In well, terms uh, of how uh, this is funded, we do have reports that Catherine Martin uh, thinks it should be Exchequer funded and that the others say, no, absolutely not. I mean, that's what um, Michael McGrath said when he was in here during the year. Absolutely not. It has to be part Exchequer, part tax. You see, I think politicians will wait till they're forced into a, um, a decision on RTE because they haven't made a, a, a viable decision on them at all. Those of us who worked in the media have been looking at that organisation for an awful long time. People feel that it's envy or, or uh, vindictiveness that, that has spurred our reporting on them this year. It's not been that. We've seen that it's been a dysfunctional organisation. 
um, I, I disagree with uh, Fergus somewhat, but I know what he was getting at. It was you very think people will remember the detail of It was this? very simple what happened. The RTE misreported um, what it was paying its most high-profile presenters uh, to the Oireachtas. Uh, if if any other state organisation did that, there would have been a similar reaction from the Oireachtas. And it had been a high-profile discussion for many years, the amount of money that, they, that their highest-paid presenters were paid. And it has now set off a chain reaction where I don't think the organisation, as it exists, is viable in the future. What will ultimately happen, if you look at the trend of the evasion of um, licence fees, is they're going to run out of money pretty quickly. And then a, then a decision will be forced upon the government to present to us a rump public service broadcaster that covers specific events, probably funded by, directly by the, by the state, which I don't see as a huge problem anyway. I mean, their funding is wholly state-sponsored in the first place. The courts support the pursuit of the TV licence. The, court the courts are the state. And the, the state has bailed them out already this year. So an awful lot of the business that RT has done in recent years will no longer be done by them. Okay. And we will see oh. a new... Although Kevin Backer, when I spoke to him, said otherwise, I have to say. He seemed to be saying it would be, you but know, I think if you look essentially be the same organisation. But look, just but I think Kevin Backhurst is a very good politician. If you watch everything that he has done, he has done it incrementally. But, you know, um, the biggest um, name in the organisation is now gone. And that, and that has taken something away from the organisation. He has instituted cuts, as we predicted in our newspaper back in July, and, and over 200 redundancies. So for everything he's saying that he won't do, ultimately, he's, he's doing an awful lot. All right, let's go to the other major event, I think, that happened in Ireland this year, which was the riots in Dublin, uh, Fergus Finlay. What it has led to, though, is a bigger conversation about immigration in this country. What do you make of that? I think it's frightening. I think it's sad. I think it's tragic. I think it's necessary. Uh, I think we have to debate it. I think we have to discuss it. I think we have to be open and honest about it. I think we have to get facts and figures on the table, uh, and we have to get them on the table in a way that can't be disputed. Uh, we have to try and confront disinformation and misinformation. Um, there are... There's huge anger. Um, and it's being fomented and it's being stirred up in all sorts of ways. But there's huge anger, and it's anger about asylum seekers. It is not anger about, you know, the New Zealanders, the Americans, the British who come to work in Ireland. Like, we issued 32,000 work permits. We've increased the number of work permits. That's immigration. That's, we want foreigners to come and work here. And we're thrilled with that. I heard a contributor on this programme last night saying, effectively, we're happy with that because they're white and they speak English. They're not a problem. Well, I think what they were, what, I don't know who you're referring to, but I think the idea was people who come and contribute, who work, that's what they're comfortable with. Yeah. There's a tiny, tiny number of people, proportionately speaking, who come to escape persecution and oppression from other countries. In terms of the overall number of people coming into Ireland, the vast majority of whom, by the way, are Irish people coming home. There is a tiny number of people and they are stirring enormous amounts of fear. These are the unvetted males that we talk about. Do you think, though, because we've seen this harder line coming, Louise, from some independents, we've seen it from some councillors, 
And they are saying, when you're speaking to them, interviewing them, we are reflecting conversations that are happening in the privacy of people's homes that people are not willing to express. Do you agree with that? I think there has to be some sort of a middle ground because I think very often in this debate we hear the one very anti-immigrant side and they seem to have a very loud voice and then we hear the other side that call them these people the racists and all these other kind of names and I don't think that's conducive to anything I don't think that that's helpful I think and I think this is something that the government have been reflecting on this week and to be honest I think it's probably come a little bit too late that there are concerns people have concerns people need to be communicated with about these concerns and that doesn't seem to be happening. So while perhaps, you know, these people who are speaking out are saying that they are reflecting concerns, I think we're losing the middle ground in this. And I mean, Fergus mentioned this whole thing of the unvetted male. The Taoiseach and Minister O'Gorman, the integration minister, came out this week and they were explaining why there's no such thing as unvetted males and the kind of the processes behind that. And you'd have to question why it's happening this week. Why was it not happening six months ago? This is not a new thing that's being bandied around. Yeah, I think in fairness, what Leo Radker was saying uh, yesterday when he was speaking about this um, quite extensively, actually, at that end of year briefing, is that maybe he said we were too afraid to confront the issue because we didn't want to be seen to be stirring hatred. And now we need to, going into 2024, confront this more and be more honest about immigration, vetting processes, etc. How do you think Fine Gael and Fine Foyle ha have handled this? Well, I, I think the riots obviously took the government completely by surprise, which is extraordinary, but that judging by the reaction, they didn't know that anything like this could possibly happen and they certainly weren't prepared for it. But that would indicate that they didn't know what people were saying or what people were thinking. And it would also indicate they didn't understand something which is quite alarming about what happened that night, is that there was a network there. And it was quite obvious that the moment it happened, the word went out on social media to people all over the country. They, they weren't all from one area or from Dublin, <coughs> etc. And they swarmed in on Dublin. Not in large numbers, but maybe a couple of hundred. That is very, very worrying. And, and what Leo is now saying, yeah, I think he genuinely wants to catch up with it. He wants to recognise it and do something about it. But it is extraordinary. If this latent feeling, and it is racist, it is, let's not pretend it's not, if this latent feeling is there and it's going to express itself in the local elections, they weren't aware of it. Um, what is interesting is the conversation has led to, a, you know, a bigger conversation about immigration. There hasn't been enough conversation, would you agree, Louise, around those who, who looted in Dublin that evening, you know, who, who were not there, I would suggest, many people have suggested because of concerns around migration. That conversation hasn't happened. And you were uncomfortable, I think, with a lot of the language used around those who attended and did that and carried out those prints. Yeah, I was. I mean, I think Helen McEntee's use of the word scumbag to describe them was, was inappropriate because there were people who were very angry on the streets. I do not condone for one second anything that went on that night. It was absolutely appalling behaviour and it was thuggish behaviour. There's no two ways about it. But it, 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 it did highlight the anger and, and the networks that are there. That's exactly right. There are networks there and there are people feeding it. And what my fear about all of those networks that are feeding in, there are very there are people very much marginalised on the outside of communities and they are not feeling heard by politicians. They're not being feeling heard by communities. And then they are listening to these um, right-wing groups who are then saying, it's the migrants' fault that you're going to be 15 years on the social housing list. It's the migrants' fault that there's people sleeping on the tent. We know that's not the case, but they're hearing this and 
if they go to express some concern, they're called racist. And we need to listen to people's concerns and confront them and give them the facts. I think your comment about disinformation, Fergus, is, is so right. There's a lot of disinformation going on that we need to counter. I wonder, looking into 2024, though... Sorry, sorry. No, just to say, and I'm not disagreeing with you, Louise, but, I mean, I work in communities that have been waiting 15 years for housing solutions. And I work in communities that are angry and alienated. And I have yet to meet anyone in any of those communities who'd want to see that kind of no, no, nobody, no, nobody wanted that. No, no, honest. nobody wanted that. Third I think we shouldn't But get... they are listening to those groups, Fergus, and no, there's no denying that. We shouldn't get away from what happened that night. And I think, you know, leadership is all about leading even if maybe it might cost you a few points uh, in opinion polls and everything else. Ireland is not a racist country. I was in, in the city the night of those riots. I was also in Dáil Éireann and outside Dáil Éireann as, as Louise was in, in September when there were riots. Let's not forget there was a chronic failure of policing. There was a chronic failure by, by the government over a, a long period of time to properly resource the Gardaí. The Gardaí themselves failed, and this has been roundly this, covered. Yeah, this is the policing plan rather than, you know, necessarily the reaction of those... I was outside Leinster House in September, and there was people displaying effigies of, of politicians, including Sinn Féin politicians, by the way, um, being hung and shouting hate. That is a crime. There should have been a tougher stance, is what but you're the, saying? That it's been roundly accepted that the, the Gardaí were undermanned and did not have proper public um, public order policing tactics instituted on those occasions. So to say that somehow a racist and uh, ideological movement was behind what happened in those riots in, in Dublin City that night, I think is overblowing it a bit. I, I, we just looked at the images there. I, I, I failed to see an ideological movement behind people looting. Um, sneaker shops or, or, or shops of supplied That's runners. simplistic, John. That's I'm, I'm just saying, simplistic. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't believe there was anything other than a failure. And I've covered riots. I've, I've been around. I tell you, those one kind of the of things incidents. I was proudest of that night was a failure was, of policing. Was watching the guards. But the guards, I was, I was there, Fergus. The guards we were will tell in, you themselves. We were both I in the city hold on a second. Don't interrupt we me. Just let me finish. Guardy themselves have told me I've been a crime correspondent. They've been told me that they are afraid to intervene against rioters or people causing disorder because they'll be prosecuted Is that the wrong conversation they're supposed to be having? We're talking about policing here. Well, well, I don't know that we should, but if we are, I want to just say to you that I saw that night the guards, little by little, reassert control of the city. It wasn't easy. They didn't have enough resources. And they're afraid they to draw their ballot they, but they, the because they'll be they investigated they withdrew, for, they, for they, overzealous policing. Whether they were afraid no or not. No one's criticising okay, the rank and file guard. Whether, whether, whether they were afraid or not. They reasserted control of the city with sheer guts and patience and diligence. They didn't hit anybody. They didn't charge anybody. They didn't draw their buttons. And I was proud of that. Right. I was proud of the way they did OK, look, but we're going to have no to leave that conversation there for now. After the break, we are going to be looking at what politicians had a good year and who had one that they would rather forget. Do stay with us. Very welcome back. Now, 
now it's time to round up how 2023 fared for some of our politicians. And Louise, I want to come to you first because it might surprise some people, but do you actually think the government parties have had quite a good year? And well, that shouldn't would... <laughs> have ended it poorly. Yeah, I wouldn't say they've had a good year. There's been some moments where there's been some really positive developments. So I wouldn't say overall it's a good year. I couldn't say that when there's 3,991 children in emergency. But what I will say is I was really impressed with um, Leah Radker announcing the Child Poverty and Wellbeing Unit at the start of this year. And he's appointed Liz Canavan, who's the Assistant Secretary General, the Taoiseach's office, and Anna Visser, who's a very impressive woman as well, to head up that. So that's really positive and I hope that will make a huge impact on children going forward. So that's one of the positive things. I think Michal Martin has taken a very principled stand on migration issues and he hasn't bowed down to some of his grassroots people who haven't taken such a principled stand but I think he's shown real leadership around the migrate, migrate situation. Um, and I think Helen McEntee has failed in some of the policing issues, but I think she has come out really strong on the domestic violence strategy and announcing the new um, unit that's going to be set up, the new uh, domestic violence unit and her zero tolerance. So I think that's really been a positive move from the government. So I wouldn't say overall that okay, they Okay, so you're picking out some positives. Yeah, in terms some of those positives. who haven't had such a good year, you think Sinn Féin have ended it poorly? Why? I, I think Sinn Féin, it's, you know, I think they have been appealing to people with very very populist views, which a lot of, I would agree with, you know, they're, they're talking about solving the home, housing and homeless situation. Of course, I'm going to agree with that. And there's a, a lot of really strong policies that they have and they're coming up with. But they courted a certain type of people who have now turned against them. Um, so people, and, and I think they've been straddling a bit. And I think, as, as John Lee said there earlier, there were effigies of Sinn Féin politicians who were being attacked by people who two years ago, they, Sinn Féin were being seen as the ones who would change the system. And now people are turning against them. I think if there'd been an election a year ago, they would have done better than if, if, if in six months time, the local elections. And, and you're running a story tomorrow, aren't you, John, that you say signals a, sh a shift in sort of Sinn Féin position around and policy around the area of migration. I dropped my glasses on the floor, I can't. Um, <laughs> well, M Mary Lou MacDonald has given an interview with Craig Hughes, our political correspondent, where she, um, cranks up somewhat her, her stance on, uh, on immigration. I'll try and pull it up here. But um, essentially saying that uh, you, Ukrainian people who aren't in, involved in critical employment should have their special status um, reconsidered. And um, she goes on to make some rather um, stronger statements on immigration, having sensed, I think, it, must, it would seem to me a, a shift in the, in the body politic. I hope not, that that hasn't happened. That's quite happened. a major shift from where they've been over the last number of weeks. Yes, but I, I, would, I would agree 100% with Louise. I think they've had a very bad uh, end to 2023. Sinn Féin, not, um, purely um, the, the most significant element of that is they've fallen 3% in two major um, nas national opinion polls. Um, on Israel and Gaza, Mary Lou Macdonald had a major U-turn after a, after a meeting in Belfast where she had said overnight she wasn't going to call for the expulsion of the Israeli ambassador. The, follow, the following day she did so, having met with, um, we understand, her northern members and uh, something called the International Department, whatever that is. Uh, they tabled a motion of confidence in, no confidence in the Minister for Justice, which backfired spectacularly. Uh, anyone with a bit of sense in Sinn Féin um, would have told Mary Lou Macdonald that for a party 
with its long association with criminality and but terrorism. But I think a lot of people would appreciate why that motion of no confidence was taken. Well, and you even know, if it, I if spoke it did to... Fail, I just, I just, I'm just I, conscious... I, I, sorry, well, I spoke to quite a few members of Sinn Féin who didn't agree and thought it was a very bad political move. OK, I, you still, despite the criticism we're hearing, we still have to recognise where they are in the polls. A fall in the poll from a high position. Louise, do you think they've had a good or a bad year? I think they've had a mixed year. I think on the beats that they're good at, stuff like housing with Owen O'Brien, he's very strong on that. David Cullinan, I think, has had a great year in the health spokesman role. But I do think they have had a very rocky end to the year. I think John's right. I think that vo motion of no confidence in the Minister McEntee was a huge mistake because you were kind of caught in the middle then because there was people who were saying, well, why won't you put it down? And another co cohort of people saying, well, if you put that motion down, you're feeding into the hands of these protesters. You're giving them what they want. And I think stuff like, as well, we saw during the debates with Minister McEntee at one point, uh, Louise O'Reilly bringing in a picture to the doll of a man kind of near um, the Parnell Square school drinking a can and waving it around and Marilyn McDonald also posted that on Twitter and I think that that actually lost them quite a lot of favour as John said they have gone down in the polls I mean if you look at over the last two months I think they're down something like 7% which is so unexpected but I think you know we're coming into an election year no doubt the ante is going to be upped and I'd be interested to see what they do and how they recover from this little bump. Okay moving on to some of the other parties Fergus Finley you feel it's been a very bad year for the Labour Party and the polls well, well, it, the polls would agree, wouldn't they? I, I mean, the Labour Party is my party, it's always been my party. It's the oldest democratic party in the history of the state. It has been battered and bruised um, and uh, is struggling uh, to, um, you know, to find a voice and to make itself relevant in the, in the melee. Um, but it has come back before and, I, you know, I'm a believer in the, in the resilience of the party. Uh, I, I, I mean, it's a bit like, in, you know, um, is it a difficulty with the leadership at the minute? No, I don't think. I don't think connect? so. I think what I think there is a there is an issue, uh, uh, and it's hard to articulate. Great people, not a very effective team, and that happens. It happens in sport. It happens in life, and they've got to get their act together. Um, they're not, you know, it hasn't been it hasn't been a great year for them. But but I, I didn't want I, I don't want to be just pigeonholed as the talker about the Labour Party. I'm amazed at Sinn Féin. Sinn Féin is the opposition party. It's the leading opposition party. Um, it's the leading opposition party against a government in a first world country that has made a dog's dinner of some absolutely vital quality of life issues. Housing being the main Housing, one. health, ed education to a considerable extent, children that Louise was talking about. It has made a complete supreme mess of those things. And an opposition party that flounders around around all sorts of other things and can't seem to get its act together. And I, I thought, for example, they were making a great fist to housing. And now I hear that they're advocating a policy which would compulsorily somehow or other reduce okay. all house prices in Dublin. How's that going to work? OK, what anything? about the other opposition parties and the independents, Shane? How have they fared this year? Well, I mean, if you, if you look at the opinion polls, you'll find that uh, Holly Cairns of the Social Democrats is actually the most popular leader. But it's not reflected, as it so often isn't, in the in, in actually party mem members' support for the party. So she's doing well, but they, they're not actually they're not actually get, scoring as a party very well. They're up about six percent. But I was interested in what Fergus had to say, and I, what I cannot understand is why the Social Democrats and Labour don't merge. They believe in exactly the same things. They say exactly the same things. Social democracy is something which they both right. pay tribute to on frequent occasions, and, uh, and yet they won't get together. 
which is They're never going to do it on the basis of your advice, Jane. Okay, look, unfortunately... <laughs> I know, well, I, I, hope I, I hope I haven't stopped them. Uh, we're but... going to have to leave it yeah. there for now. That is it from the Tonight Show this year. My thanks to all of my panellists uh, this evening and all of my panellists throughout the year and for you at home for watching. Have a great, have a peaceful Christmas and a happy new year and we'll see you back here on the Tonight Show on Wednesday, the 3rd of January. Till then, take care. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.